Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, I'm Jessie Ware and I present a podcast called Table Manners with my mum. Say hi, mum. Hi. We're very proud that Smart EQ for 2 and for 4 are sponsoring Table Manners at the moment. Are they all electric, Jess? Yeah, all of them now. With the new Smart EQ for 2, Cabrio and 4-seater Smart 4-4, it means that the original city car is now fully electric across the range. Wow, I can't wait to see them. Apparently, they're really fun, spacious and practical to drive. And the new smart car comes with all the benefits of electric driving, like its powerful acceleration. I didn't know that electric cars were so powerful for acceleration. Neither did I. Mm. And, and that you can charge it at home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, of course, the most important thing, emission-free driving. Perfect for the city. Search Smart EQ 42 and 44 to find out more. <music> My relationship with the church and the scripture is fraught. Growing up in my grandfather's church, I at once felt the warmth of God's love and the frosty judgment of those who felt there was no love there for people like me. At 16, after years of praying for God to make me straight, I left the church and vowed to never return. If I was to lean into myself, I wouldn't be able to do so under the watchful and judgmental eyes of God. My story is not unique. There are countless queer black people who languish under the weight of scripture and who are unable to reconcile their sexuality and their faith. This is where my guest comes in. Reverend Jide Macaulay is a theologian and spiritual leader behind House of Rainbow, a welcoming and affirming religious community that invites queer people and our allies alike to join in the celebration of their faith. His path to reconciliation has been long and arduous, but he is using his experience and his scholarly interrogation of the scriptures to shine a light for other queer people looking to reclaim their faith. He encourages us to remember that the Bible is full of hope and of love and of compassion, and that any reconciliation must begin with in ourselves. I'm Josh Rivers and I'm busy being black with Reverend Jide Macaulay. I've been thinking a lot about this conversation. You know, my own relationship with the church is fraught. Uh, my, you know, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. I grew up in his church. Some of my favorite and most enduring memories are in that community and in that communion that we had after church as well. Um, but at the same time, it is the place I learned that I was wrong, that I that I was some sort of abomination, that I had to cast something out of me in order to be closer to God and, and indeed my family. So I don't know where to start because there are so many conflicting 
feelings. It feels like a conversation I need to have, a reconciliation I need to have. Um, and I don't know how we begin that journey of reconciliation. So perhaps it's best to start with you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I've been looking forward to being on Busy Being Black. So, um, and here we are today. And I think that, you know, the, the, the thing around reconciling your sexuality and your religious beliefs and your faith or within your religious communities um, sometimes might seem complex. I think it's complex because we don't know the facts. We don't know the truth. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14, for example, says, you know, uh, that we're no longer children being tossed to and fro and being weighed down by corny craftiness. You see, the, the idea is that... Um, you know, religious communities can be quite corny. They can be conniving. Um, they can create situations that make people deeply uncomfortable. Um, we're talking about, um, you know, the faith communities. We're talking about the Bible and homosexuality today. I think centuries ago, we're talking about the Bible and slavery. We're talking about the Bible and racism. We're talking about the Bible and the subjugation of women you know, and the abuse of children. I mean, people have used the Bible as a weapon of choice. So when it comes to the um, the LGBT community, and more so people of color, they, we have used the Bible to bash. Mm -hmm. We have used the Bible to destroy. But I think that at the same time, you know, I'm here to confess to say that the Bible is also the good news. The Bible comes with the good news of the inclusive love of God, you know, the ineffable love of Jesus Christ that transcends all understanding. You know, the fact that, you know, um, people who felt that the Bible promoted or supported inhumane treatment of black people during slavery have turned it around to saying it is not so. We can do the same as well. We can begin to look at our own theology and begin to turn this chaos around. I mean, I also grew up in a family uh, where religion was, um, you know, the foundation. Uh, religion was very important in my family. Faith was very important. I never remember the time where I didn't go to church. I grew up in a family of Christians. But, you know, I've always known that I'm gay when I was about six, seven years old. You know, that didn't change. But what changed was when I came across the um, biblical text. You know, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, that says that a man should not lie with a man. It is an abomination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and they shall be put to death. That scared the life out of me at age 13. But here I am presenting myself to you at age 52. That text has come around, has come a full circle around, and it doesn't mean what it says. Well, how do you interpret that? that how do we interpret now? that? You see, uh, Leviticus is called the Holiness Code. Uh, Leviticus was designed, you know, under the Mosaic law, you know, for purification of a group of people. That is the Levites, those who, you know, um, handle the Ark of God, those who will be at the temple of God. And remember, there is also for the people of Israelites when they were coming out of Egypt, because the instruction that actually precedes uh, the Leviticus chapter is that, you know, I am giving you this law. Do not do as the people of Egypt where you're coming from and do not do as mm. the people of yeah, Canaan right. to which I'm taking you. But you see, what we need to be looking at is that, you know, all these laws need to be looked at in a way that is understood then and today. And I think that we need to look at it in the context is, is this law actually speaking to same gender loving relationship? Is this about two people who are in love with each other or two people who are violating each other? But you see, I mean, the other problem with Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, is that Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, two verses before the 13th verse, 
says that if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Mm-hmm. I don't see anyone going around town <laughs> gathering the adulteress. That's right. You know? So, I mean, I, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm very serious, but it must sound like a joke sometimes that I say, you know, let's gather the adulterers and see how far we get, you know, because verse 11 comes before verse 13. Sure. And, and I see I, how far we go before we get to the gaze. Sure. And I suppose that the contradictions are well known. So, you know, we know as queer people of faith, and I I, I say that very broadly because I'm not sure what my relationship is to the religion I grew up on anymore, but I do consider myself a person of some kind of faith, even if I'm not able to quite name it yet. I mean, we understand those contradictions and we understand that there has been a tussle for us, both with our family and with this relationship we've been trying to cultivate with a higher power or God as we know him or them or her. We still have to do the hard work of unpicking all we've learned, of processing that trauma. And because these contradictions are not delivered to us as contradictions, right? One of those is taken, i.e. Leviticus um, chapter 20, verse 13. That is delivered to us to remind us of our place outside of God's love. Well, you see, the reality uh, is this, Josh, that... Um, we're talking about the Old Testament, and I'm not going to say that as a Christian we discount the Old Testament. But when Jesus Christ came, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill them. Unfortunately, those who came before Jesus Christ, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the head of government at the time, were also misinterpreting the law. Mm. They are misusing the law. And we see that today. Yes, The Bible says that, you know, the, the people say that the Bible say that, you know, you should not spare the rod. You know, you beat the child until they turn black and blue or to put mark on their body. No. But I think, you know, disciplining the child doesn't mean that you should harm them. There's a difference between disciplining the child and child abuse. Let's distinct, distinguish between those two. But you see, I mean, those two verses that I quoted, you know, Leviticus uh, 2011 and 2013, is just an example, um, a, a tip of the iceberg. You mm. know, throughout the Old Testament, there are many more verses in there that says that, you know, if your daughter's not a virgin by the time they're married, they should be killed. They should be stoned to death. Mm. If children are rude to their parents, they should be stoned to death. You know, uh, we should not mix, you know, uh, wear um, uh, fabrics of um, clothing of mixed fabrics. There are so many things that the Bible says in the Old Testament that we do not do to day. If a woman is going through the menstrual circle, they're not allowed to stay in the city. They're supposed to be banished out of the city. I mean, it's increasingly difficult when you think about how we have, you know, understood Bible by moving forward, but there are certain things that we're still holding on to. And let's also be mindful. I just want to take us back a little bit to history as well. The Bible was used to justify slavery, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that it ended there. There is still an element of racism in our society today. That also means that those who are the custodians of theology need to begin to think, how do we move forward? Do you understand me? How do we take this pain and turn it into something that liberates us? Mm. That is why, you know, African-Americans primarily, to my understanding, and many other African scholars, you know, began to study liberation theology or develop liberation theology. And today there are still people, descendants of slaves, that are so true you know, uh, to the gospel teaching, to, to, to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably, within the gay community, you know, someone has stood up who's black, who's black as well, like me, to say that, uh, you know, uh, um, Reverend Judy Macaulay is a disgrace to the African, 
you know, continent because mm. he embraces the colonizer's religion. So not only that I'm black, uh, not only am I gay, I'm also being discriminated against for my choice of being a Christian. So I think that, you know, the, the greatest understanding is that we need to develop um, our own deep-rooted understanding of our own theology that will liberate us. And so I guess how do we begin that? I think that if I look at my own journey, I don't need convincing that God loves me. Mm -hmm. I don't need convincing that God adores me. Mm -hmm. I do not need those convincing at all. Um, you know, I went to study the Bible knowing what I knew about my own sexual orientation. And when I studied, the more I studied the Bible, the more I meditate on the Bible, the more I sit, you know, with other scholars, the more I read materials that are, you know, queerly written and liberate, you know, liberation theology, I begin to feel, you know, the, 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 the pain, the, the weight, you know, of homophobia fall off me. I mean, listen, for many gay people uh, or lesbians, bisexual, transgender, we go through self-inflicting pain on, on ourselves. We you know, punish ourselves, you know, mentally, spiritually, uh, emotionally as well. But I think what is important is that for those who are still within the faith communities or even those who have left the faith communities, it is important for them to begin to readdress the balance of what do they know or what they've been told. I think for many people is the fact that they've been told they're an abomination and they internalized it, they accepted it, they didn't challenge it. I think we need to challenge the fact that someone says we're an abomination when God did not call us an abomination. We need to challenge the interpretation of scriptures, especially when it goes off the course. You know, throughout the Bible, I mean, the, the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation is an amazing documentation of what we believe is the word of God. But at the same time, we know that, you know, there are people, human beings like us, you know, um, millennials ago that documented it. So it is actually subjected, you know, to being, uh, f um, um, uh, there could be gaps in it. Mm -hmm. So, but that is why we need scholarly debate. We need scholarly uh, discussion around it. So when, when, when I talk about um, liberation theology. I'm particularly uh, in favor of, you know, queer people coming together to begin to see how do we find ourselves within scriptures, even though it's dated? How do we find ourselves? And, you know, George, there's, you know, people can say today that, you know, they don't want to go to church. They don't believe in God. But I want to say to them, do they believe in themselves? Do they believe in themselves? Are they able to command, you know, the power of spirituality? Are they able to look at, you know, what has gone before them, their ancestors, you know? Are they able to focus on those that they admire, you know, in the past, in the present, and, of course, you know, looking at themselves moving into the future, you know? I mean, my, my, my great sister, you know, uh, Phil Opoku said, well, we are here today because of what our ancestors you know, have done for us, you know, and also we are, we are, we are borrowing today for tomorrow, for the future. Mm -hmm. We're living on borrowed time. Yes. You know, it doesn't belong to us. Anything we do today, if we don't sit up to find a way to understand theology, to understand our own place, even within the faith communities, then we are failing those in the future.
I was born in a Christian family. So you go to church, you believe in God, you know, you know what is right from what is wrong. I mean, even people that don't go to church learn all of those things. Yes. But as a Christian, we also come with additional responsibility of our Christian duties, morals and ethics and all those things. But when you grow up in an ultra-conservative Christian environment, it means that there are certain things that you do not do. For example, homosexuality is simply an abomination. And I think that for me at the time, even if I look back now, if homosexuality is an abomination, then definitely being black should also be an abomination. But we've turned it around, you know, as we begin to understand theology. But you see, the reality is that when I came to the age 13, that's my puberty age, with the age of 13 and 16, I began to see my homosexuality differently because I couldn't do anything about it at that point. But the reality is that because I was, you know, part of a Christian family, a Christian fold, a faith community, it means that every time I think about being gay, every time I do something about my sexuality, particularly when it comes to, you know, um, seeing, being attracted to a person of my own gender, I feel that I have fallen deeply into sin. God doesn't love me. I'm definitely an abomination. And it takes me back to the um, uh, chapter and verse in Leviticus that says it's an abomination. So that is the moment where I began to internalize it. I began to say God doesn't love me. Then I obviously started to pray, God save me. Mm -hmm. But because I was also raised in an African culture, where it is believed that your parents will take care of you, they send you to school, you know, where they can afford it, they send you to university. And the natural process is that, you know, you get married and then you have children, lots of children. And in my case, that happened too, you know. So I think that for me, it, the challenge was not the fact that I'm a Christian, not the fact that I was gay, but the fact that I was pursuing very much a mixed sexual orientation relationship. And the reason for that is because my church that I grew up in would not did not give me the platform for me to come forward to say exactly how I am feeling. Because the teaching and the understanding is that homosexuality is an abomination. There was nothing that I can do about it. But you didn't run away from the church. I, I didn't run away from the church in my early days. Why? Because I believed that the church was right and I was wrong. Right. I strongly believe at the time that, you know, um, the Bible was quite clear that homosexuals are going to go to hell and it was an abomination. So my attempt, you know, to stay true to being a heterosexual was to pray intensely. But I grew up in African independent churches and we pray <laughs> in those churches. You know, um, if I want to pray for something very simple, I might fast and pray for one day. If it's something I consider a bit tougher, I fast and pray for three days, maybe slightly tougher. I fast and pray for seven days. But in my case, when I presented my situation to God about my homosexuality, I fasted and prayed for 40 days. 40 days I prayed. I lamented to God. I said, God, please cure me of my homosexuality. I do not want to be gay. Listen, this wasn't an easy thing to do. I was in my early 20s. I was, I was doing everything to pray the gay away because there was nobody to talk to. There was nobody to listen to me about my struggles at the time. It wasn't easy. I mean, in the African community, who do you, who, who do you go to to tell them what you're struggling with? 
I can tell people I'm struggling with money. I can tell them I'm struggling with anything else, but not my same-sex attraction. No one in my family, including my parents, knew what I was struggling with at that age. So I went to God. And then you know, I was praying to God, God, just as you bless Isaac with a wife, bless me with a wife. As you bless Jacob with a wife, bless me with a wife. So we, we're using scriptures again here. Mm-hmm. When I finished my prayer over 40 days, I asked a young lady in church if she will be my girlfriend. And she said yes. And I concluded mm-hmm. that God had answered my prayers yes, after all. And I didn't realize that was actually the beginning of my struggles. That was just part one. I entered into a relationship with this lovely girl at church. You know, she didn't know my struggles. I never spoke to her about my struggles. Two years into the relationship, everything seems fine. Then the next two years, making up to four years, there were challenges. Because I was beginning to stray mentally, emotionally, my feelings wasn't with her. But after four years of dating this amazingly beautiful woman, I, you know, the, the church, the elders of the church knew that we had a strong relationship. We were happy together. When people see us, they see that we're bonded, we're strong together, and they then put pressure on us that we must marry. And then comes the families as well, you know. By that time, I was, must be about 26 years old. 25, 26 years old when that pressure came you must get married and at the time we started to live together as well and I think for me you know that point in time I haven't had the time or the chance to talk to anyone but I carried on that relationship nonetheless and we got married it was three years into the marriage that you know uh, my mental health you know was beginning to show the crack I was beginning to feel psychologically let down I was beginning to feel I was at a breaking point. You know, I came home one day and I told my wife, my now ex-wife, that I'm gay. Her words was, I can't compete with this. And she was right. She was right because I felt at that point that my community, my faith community, failed me because there was no one that I could confide in to tell them my struggles. And even if I did, I was very much afraid that I would have been condemned. When I came out as gay, instead of me to receive an open hand and support, the church further ostracized me. And when I came out, I had to struggle. So my sexuality became one thing on one side and then my Christian faith on the other side. When I first came out as gay, it was very public within the church community. I was also sad because at that time I have made leadership. I was well known. Mm. And were you excommunicated when you came out? I was practically excommunicated. You know, the elders of the church helped my ex-wife to change the locks on that home. And I became homeless, you know, if not for friends and other members of my family who helped me find a place to stay. I would have been on the streets. But when I first came out as a black queer man in London, I didn't know where to go to. Right. So I can't go to church. I couldn't go to the gay community because the gay community was very white. Mm. You know, the places that I found were the clubs, you know, in the basements and in the underground. And it was deeply uncomfortable. And, you know, you have to question yourself, is this what being gay means? You know, the, the, the dark basement club, is that what being gay is? 
and of course, you know, by this time I know for sure that I'm gay and, you know, I need to do something about it. And, you know, one of the first people that I came in contact with was people like Mark Thompson, you know, people like Ajamo, mm -hmm. you know, who took me in as a brother and looked after me. It was a difficult time for me, to be quite honest. I'm just thinking back those journey. And it was also the time that I was ostracized from my family. My parents were not in England at the time, except my mother. My dad that I was so close to was not in London at the time. I really needed him at that point in my life. Um, my brothers didn't know what to do. It was later that I knew that they were struggling. They didn't want to upset me by saying anything. But because they didn't say anything, it means that mm -hmm. we fell apart. We just drifted apart. And the more we drifted apart, the wider the gap were. So it became very, very difficult. So when you think that it's easy being in London and, you know, you're struggling with your sexuality, you've just been ostracized by your own community, the, the Christian community, the Nigerian community, then you find yourself in the middle of a storm. This was 1994. And it took me two years that I didn't go to church because I felt if the church don't want me, it means that God don't love me. But at the time, you know, unlike now where you have social media, you know, we had radio. So I just tuned into the radio stations and listened to sermons on the radio. And then the more I listened to, you know, certain radio stations and I, I feel, you know, you know, close to God. You know, I continue to study my Bible, continue to do my own devotions at home. You know, I, you know, found out about another church and I felt I like this church. I'm going to go to this church. And the church was called Glory House. And my first day at Glory House, I made a serious decision to myself that I'm not going to let anyone know that I'm gay and I'm just going to go to church, worship and go home. Little did I know that on my first day at church, I met a gay man at the doorstep of the church. That was how significant that day was. Mm -hmm. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I wanted to turn back, but I froze. I stayed. I stayed in the church for another four years before they found out that I was gay. The second time around, excommunicating from church wasn't easy. You know, I was subjected to... So they so they found out you were gay four years later and yeah. you were excommunicated again. I was excommunicated again. But this time it was more brutal than the first time because, you know, they did try, you know, a form of exorcism, you know, uh, a pattern of deliverance. You know, um, I had to subject myself to a number of Bible readings, you know, to get rid of my homosexuality. I've got to confess who else is gay in the church that I know that I've contaminated. I was called a contaminated soil that the devil is using me to, you know, contaminate Christians. And, um, and you know, uh, there was snide remarks. Um, there was a good friend of mine, um, you know, I'll call her name. She's amazing, Iyewu. Iyewu was one of my friends. Uh, she comforted me during my very low moments at church. She comforted comforted me um, when people were abusing me, when people made snide, snide remarks at me in church. Um, when they first realized I was gay at church, you know, all my responsibilities were taken away from me. Um, I was part of the pastoral care department. I could no longer, you know, function there. I was part of the drama and poetry group. I can no longer function there. Um, I was part of several other ministries as well, you know, supporting ministries. Um, so I was a driver to some of the clergies. When they come visiting, I can no longer do those duties. So I mean, when we, they found out that I was gay. The first question I think that pops into my mind is, 
it's like an abusive relationship, right? That that we keep going back you to. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's easier to say that it's an abusive relationship that we keep going back to. But I think that we need to be able to separate our relationship with a church as opposed to our relationship with God. My yes, relationship with God is not abusive. I think that's the thing that we're trying. No, yeah. of course not. And I, I, I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about reconciliation, yeah. right? It, it, it is about that separation of the people who misinterpreted the word and the space in which they misinterpreted it and, and the damage that they do in that space with that misinterpreted word. And we as queer individuals who despite everything that, that, that those spaces and those people put us through, manage to find and cultivate a relationship with God. We do, we do, we do. And so yeah. I think we have to address that bit in the middle because that is where the pain is. That's I, where it I hurts. totally hear you. I think that, you know, um, you know, there's something that always reminds me of God and it's the story of Job. You know, Job had beautiful daughters and, you know, they died and, you know, Job suffered so much. And later on, you know, he had other children. But I think that, you know, it's, it's that story of that painful relationship going through what you have to go through. It makes you stronger. But I think that, you know, the relationship that I had with church initially, while well, I was still struggling with my sexuality to the point where I've totally turned it around and I said myself, that is the relationship that God is calling us to, to understand ourselves, how supposed to understand the church we go to. But you see, my journey, my journey went a, a different way. It went different circles. It went different pathway. But it eventually got to a point where I found a church that is inclusive and welcoming to gay people. And that is where I found my home. That is what also propelled me to start the ministry of House of Rainbow. Not in my comfort zone, but far away in Lagos, Nigeria in 2006, a country that is extremely hostile to the gay community. That is deep. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, praise myself, but I'm not going to sit here and boast. Because when I went to Nigeria, I had no idea how risky, how dangerous it was. And I'm glad that I did not. But I think that the reality is that I believe that God used those circumstances, you know, that put me through so much pain, so much tears, so much agony, you know, so that I can be able to reach that place where I can understand what it's like to be discriminated against mm -hmm. in the house of God. So that I can bring the inclusive gospel of Jesus Christ that tells the queer people that they are loved by God. You see, I may have tears. When I was reading that devotion earlier on, the Bible says that weeping may linger all day and all night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, I'm actually at a place today where my joy is full. You know, I say to people that I'm a happy, holy homosexual. I'm not a tearing, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not in tears. I'm not sad. I am very happy because I know that my journey has to go through this pathway. You know, even Psalm 23, I believe verse 4 says, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of the, the dark valley, we fear no evil. For me, I say to people we're walking through is not our destination. Keep walking, brothers. If you're gay and you're in the church, keep walking. You will find that place of peace. You find a place of reconciliation when you pick up your bible you know the holy spirit will guide you you know to those passages and verses that will affirm you that will you know make you stay in a place of love for god a love for god from jesus so it's not those verses that people believe that condemns you not so the bible is filled with hope 
the Bible is filled with a lot of, um, you know, good messages. So, but the reality is that, you know, I mean, as it's commonly saying, you know, that, you know, you have to go through the mess before you're able to get your message or be able to share your message. Yes, I know that. <laughs> I feel like um, the events of my life have proven that to be true. And I also feel that, you know, um, re reconciling your faith and your sexuality also means that, you know, you need to find the right church for you. Um, a lot of work has been done uh, within the churches, not just one denomination, many denominations. You know, uh, even the Pentecostal denominations, you know, there is a lot of work that's been done. Um, so to, to get the ministers to begin to understand the love of God for queer people. I asked my followers to give me some questions. Mm. My queer black followers, you know, if you were in conversation with a queer black theologian, a queer black spiritual leader, what would you ask them? And one of them, Ben Donkor, a poet, he said, how do you reconcile this Christianity that was weaponized against black people on the continent? And I, 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 you, you touched on it earlier, right? That someone said it about you already, that, that you, are the, you have the colonizer's religion. religion. So how do you respond to a, to a young queer black man who himself, Ben, was... Um, subjected to conversion therapy. So his question's quite pointed and quite poignant, right? It is. It is, it is an important question. And I think that it's not only gay people that are subjected to, uh, you know, conversion therapy. Um, people with physical disabilities are subjected to some form of therapy within the church. They're subjected to inhumane treatment, you know, called in the name of deliverance. It's so wrong. Um, you know, people that are visually impaired or have hearing, you know, a hearing impairment, uh, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, we just need to educate society to understand differences, to understand diversity. Right, but I think what yeah. we're talking about is that, and again, it comes back to this reconciliation, right? The pain has been caused. The damage has been inflicted. There are wounds. And so I think the question I'm trying to answer for myself is how do I start to address the pain of that time, the pain of learning that I was wrong? And how, how, how might we begin that healing process? Because it doesn't seem clear to me how that healing process begins, because I understand that the Bible can be interpreted for all of its hope. But I also know from firsthand experience, as you know, as Ben knows, that that is not how it is interpreted. And indeed, it's weaponized against us to make us feel subhuman, as it has been, as you've already said, has, has always done that historically, right? Christianity has been weaponized against black bodies. So now we're sitting in conversation. You have the House of Rainbow, which is an inclusive space for all of us to celebrate the faith. But as part of that practice of the House of Rainbow, I imagine there is some healing that happens. Absolutely. And so I'd love to know yeah. what I, that healing process looks like. Actually, thanks for clarifying the question as well. I, the, the healing begins with you. The healing begins with you letting go, you know, and that letting go means that you have to come to terms with letting go what you've been taught has been mm. wrong. Mm. Um, one of my favorite um, civil rights activists, Harriet Tubman, said, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed an additional thousand slaves only if they knew they were slaves. Now, if you've been told you're an abomination because you're a girl lesbian, you need to let go of that rhetoric for you to begin the healing and replace the abuse with the words that consoles you, 
you know, the words that say God loves you, God adores you. Because again, in scriptures as well, in Romans um, chapter 9, from verse 19 through to 26, and I believe 25 and 26 says, you know, that in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. In fact, the verse before that says that in the place where you are not loved, you know, you shall be called beloved. So you see, you've got to go back again to scriptures to begin to tell people that in the place where you've been told that you are not loved, you are called beloved. You see, and in the very place, because when, when I think about it, I think about places like Nigeria, Uganda, Jamaica, you know, where gay people have been told they're an abomination, but the Bible says the opposite, that they are called beloved children of the living God. So I think this is some, that's part of it. And, you know, I, I don't expect this to happen overnight. Mm. You know, my illustration is that, you know, for example, when we have a 25-year-old gay man that's been told an abomination all their, all their life, you know, it could trigger off many things. It could trigger mental health. It could trigger psychological disorder. It could trigger attempted suicide. It could trigger anything. But we need to also come to a place where we begin to emphasize the love of God and take people. We don't have, you know, a, 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 you know, rituals, you know, we don't have, you know, we're going to, you know, pour it in you. No, we don't do all of those things. But I think what is important is to take people on a journey. It's conversational. It's to remind people that God loves you the way you are. And again, it's also by faith. People also need to carry themselves. And I think that a lot of the forms of teaching and the forms of practice that comes with House of Rainbow, you know, also comes in forms of meditation. We take time out to be silent. We take time out, you know, to be still. We take time out, you know, to enjoy the ambience, you know, of a dim light. We take time out, you understand me, mm -hmm. to study the Bible. One of our main um, program at the moment is to begin to look at, you know, two or three days a full through two three day study of what the Bible says in favor of same sex relationship. And you know, the last time we had the session here in London, we had 18 people over two days. And I think for me, that is you know, that's very important because we have you know, uh, people who identify as LGBT and none who came to a two day workshop when they left, they I were had an different epiphany. people. I just had an epiphany. Uh, I was doing some work for Gay Times. Uh, last summer, because we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalization, which I always thought was quite funny that we that we celebrate something that only half happened. Um, and I was at the British Library, and they were doing um, a retrospective of all the uh, gay slash queer literature. And it dawned on me as I walked around this exhibition: "Aha! Our histories are written, right? So even in these hallowed halls where our histories aren't necessarily front and center, right? We don't see ourselves in these spaces. We might not see ourselves in these spaces all the time, but we have been there. We have always been there. And I left the British Library thinking, aha, our histories have been written, right? So we belong here. We have always been here, even if we've been erased from these spaces. And I think the same is true, actually, of, and as what you're talking about. It, it is you're very saying true. that you're taking time out to yeah. reflect and to find... Um, the hope that is in the Bible to find the celebration of same sex, same gender love in the Bible. It, it takes us going on that journey to find the spaces in which we think we've been erased. I mean, just is not just, you know, finding same sex love in the Bible. It's also finding same sex love for people of color in the Bible. And I think that even the Bible has it is, you know, I mean, currently it's written not just for the black people 
but it's all, all queer people, black queer people. So one of the things that we're doing at House of Rainbow is actually also to develop the African queer theology because we want to be able to connect, you know, our own uh, experience of our sexuality to an understanding from within the African culture. For example, many African cultures, you know, um, there's documentation, there's, you know, well-documented scholarly materials yeah, in many volumes um, that have documented the existence of homosexuality prior to the introduction of the missionaries or any kind of religion um, in Africa, you know, before colonialism, before the missionaries came onto the continent, you know, same-sex relationship existed. We didn't call it gay or lesbian at the time. Right, you there's know. a whole other language um, yeah. to that. I, again, you know, um, um, you know, the word homosexuality did not materialize until the 1860s. So, and it didn't get documented in the American Bible until 1973. Mm. So you can see that there has been a pattern of deception, you know, in introducing the word homosexual into the Bible. Right. You know, um, oh, that's right. Africa, it was a medical yeah. phrase. It, it, mm-hmm. uh, homosexual mm-hmm. was a medical phrase. Yeah, it was a medical, it was a medical yeah. phrase. And, and of course, you know, the fundamentalism and conservative uh, and theologians who were interpreting the Bible hijacked it. And of course, you know, even in my studies with, um, you know, um, those who come to House of Rainbow, for example, we've been able to look at the origin of how the word homosexuality even got into scriptures. And I think that the earliest we've gone back is about um, 1500 or something like that. You know, the first word that was used in the place where homosexuality sits for many uh, versions of the Bible. There are quite a lot of versions of the Bible. I mean, there are different Bible theologies or different school of thought. So if I don't agree with your version of the Bible, then I'll work deeply on my own version of the Bible and I'll provide a rationale for why I interpret it this way. And sometimes the, the... Two different versions of the Bible don't even talk to each other. But that's a scholarly approach. It is a scholarly approach, but at the and same time. perhaps not necessarily a follower's approach? Well, I mean, if, if, if my choice of Bible version is a new Revised Standard Version, it means that anyone using the King James Version is not going to understand what I'm saying. Right, so... How do we transcend these? I think I think we can transcend, you know, the different... Because thematically, the, yeah. the ideas in the Bible should transcend translation and interpretation. I think it can only transla- transcend translation, you know, in the common understanding of the group of people. You know, if I believe that homosexuality is an abomination mm-hmm. and people need to be killed for being homosexual, then if I'm very strong about my own interpretation of the scripture, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to change my mind. But I think that the reality is that when we start to have an open conversation about it, then it means that we are getting to a point where we are inviting diverse voices, um, whether I'm black and gay, whether I'm you know African, Jamaican, um, you know, if if everyone's invited to come and you know tell us about their own journey, right? But again, that doesn't that then become the bigger, more thematic ideas of what God and religion and Christianity represent? Because it is the it is the minutia, right? It it is the interpretation of the text of the individual texts that allow people to that encourage people or give them permission to send their children to gay conversion therapy. It is the interpretation of the texts that um, ostracize and excommunicate. And so, I think what I hear you talking about is us going higher. Right, it's going to a higher belief and understanding based on people and less on the actual words, although the words do the. Well, I, I, 
I think you're right to some extent. I think there has to be a balance of probability. Do you understand me? I mean, the Old Testament says that we should kill our enemies, but who goes out? Well, well, unless you're a state and a nation. But individually, you cannot go out and kill your enemy because... Right, but you can't yeah. go out and kill your enemy and you can't murder people and you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't be gluttonous and you shouldn't be adulterous. There's a lot that you shouldn't do, That's but right. that people make exceptions for. But those exceptions that they make are not based on the thematic ideas that are consistent across all religions across the world, which are about love and acceptance and understanding. I think, I think what we're saying here, uh, Josh, is about the values of being in a faith community. Yeah. And I think that, you know, faith communities also go beyond the scriptures or the sacred texts to make rules and laws. Um, I grew up in a very conservative um, uh, Christian organization that had laws beyond the Bible. For example, we're not allowed to wear red or black apparels. We're not allowed to smoke. We're not allowed to drink any kind of alcoholic drink at all. Do you understand me? Yes. We're not allowed to eat pork products or anything made of pork products so you can see so there are so many things that are extraordinary but i think that you know when you begin to look at it in terms of okay maybe they brought these laws because of certain reasons for example the reason they don't wear red or do not allow to wear red is because they feel that red signifies danger and black signifies death so in that sense in itself um you know we're told that don't do it but of course, you know, when I came out of that denomination, I freely wear red and black apparels and there's nothing wrong with that. And I eat pork and I love my bacon sandwiches. So, and I think that the reality is to come to a place of understanding. You see, when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, we also need to have a better understanding of why the laws were there in the first place. And if we know now that those laws do not affect how we understand same-sex relationship and and the reason i'm saying this is because we also need to go into our various histories you understand me mm -hmm. um when it comes to homosexuality homosexuality is not sodomy you understand me you know homosexuality is a relationship between two persons of the same gender you understand me mm -hmm. to sodomize someone is to abuse them mm -hmm. you understand yeah. and sodomy takes place in times of war you know, sodomy yes. is used to humiliate the other person. You know, it's about power. It's about subjugating the other person. And of course, you know, the way that people also look at sodomy is that, you know, um, in a patriarch society, they're deeply offended that other men are laying with men because right. they, it's a power over women. It's only women that lay down for the men, not the men lay down for the men. And of course, you know, it gets stranger and stranger because when you come into the interpretation in the New Testament, there's always the fact that, you know, uh, homosexuals will not go to heaven simply because they like to put on makeup. You know, they've got cooks and they've got luxury cars. You know, seriously speaking, yes, this mm. is um, some of the old interpretation of Romans chapter, uh, first Corinthians, um, you know, chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. So again, we're looking at different meanings, different understanding, you know, of some of the scriptures. But again, you know, I think that to understand what the Bible says about homosexuality, not only do we need to look at it from a scholarly uh, debate, we need to also be looking at it from a modern uh, theological perspective. And what I'm also saying and also encouraging is that let's take it also back to our cultural backgrounds and cultural upbringings. You know, I mean, if you look at the history of African homosexualities in African cultures, there has been uh, a pattern of homosexuality over the years. It has always been there. But the, but the political side of it is that because the West have moved forward, England decriminalized over 50, um, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. um, so after 50 years of criminalizing gay people, I think that the reality now is that, you know, 
We're now saying to those from a um, Commonwealth colony, it's time for you to decriminalize. I think that if this law didn't go to the colonies in the first place, they would not be decriminalizing what is already happening in those cultures before. And let's be realistic as well. You know, laws are put into place to stop, to stop something that's already happening yes. because somebody did not like it. Yes. I, 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 yeah, I'm just thinking about the, the colonization because I think it's an interesting point to labor that Christianity is also an export. And so how we come into that, and yeah. it's, a, it's interesting to me. I mean, Christianity is an export. And every time I think about, you know, uh, Christianity and I see... Uh, a Catholic cardinal, you know, say for example in a press conference saying that homosexuality is an abomination unto God, I first of all want to say, can you just look at yourself in the mirror? You're wearing a cardinal outfit from Rome and you want to talk to me about homosexuality is not African. <laughs> yes. You know, look at yourself. You yes. know, someone is telling me that, you know, homosexuality is an abomination and they just came off an aeroplane. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe you should ride on horses and and things like that to your destination. So I think that the reality is the hypocrisy as well, that, you know, there are so many people that are so hypocritical. And, you know, we also know, not that, you know, we want to pick on anyone, but at the same time, there are many people who are, are homophobic, who haven't actually dealt with their own issues. Yes. You know, whether they are gay themselves or they're struggling with it. And, 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 and I think that the reason that it's also become uh, a huge uh, topical debate within the church it's simply because, you know, there are many people within the church who are also in denial, you know, of who they are. And um, in, there are many stories. I mean, I'm not here to talk about anyone specific, but there are many stories of faith leaders who later on, we find out that they're gay yeah, and they're just extremely all homophobic. The time, of course, and politicians. So, and yeah. Anyone who's in a, in a position of, of power who espouses... Mm. Um, hate against a certain group of people often ends up loving yeah. <laughs> that group of people in a way themselves. Yeah. So I think what I'm the, the the thought that's knocking around in my head at the moment, because I'm trying to apply it to my own relationship with God, is that it's more important for me to figure out what my relationship with Him is than it is to believe whatever other interpretations are out there. Would you say that's true? I think it's important for us to first of all work out our relationship with God. You see, when we're younger, when we're young people, we we follow the instructions of our parents. They they our parents have a responsibility to lead us to Christ, you know, to lead us to God. But at the same time, <laughs> once we also become mature, we can make those decisions ourselves. Yes, I mean, I th in, in making in making those decisions, we need to reaffirm, you know, our faith in Christ. But you see, there's also a time where there is conflict about how our parents have raised us. Maybe because of their own lack of understanding of our own humanity. And that is where we need to have that conversation about, you know, mom, dad, I'm gay, you know, um, God must still love me. But I think that because of their own understanding, their own upbringing, you know, they have actually come to a conclusion that God does not love you because you're different. And I think that is where we begin to have those problems. I mean, there is actually a, a, a film that I can recommend, you know, to our listeners. Um, Prayer for Bobby is the story of um, a family whose gay son unfortunately committed suicide on this occasion. And they had to question everything that they have been taught, you know, th that the Bible says about homosexuality. 
I think the family concluded that, you know, um, the, the gay son who died didn't have to change because God has made him perfect from the beginning. And I think this is the point we need to be taking out to people. Because when we turn around and say that, you know, uh, gay people are an abomination, it creates a lot of problems for not just the gay person, but also for their family. I mean, my family have suffered enough that I'm gay. I've suffered enough that I'm gay. But I think that there is still uh, room for reconciliation. And that reconciliation has already started. Well, they haven't suffered family. because you're gay. They're suffered because of the implication of homosexuality based I, on subscribing to the religion. Well, right? I will add that point, but I think that they did suffer because they didn't understand it. I mean, my siblings just didn't want to talk. Just didn't, they chose not to talk about it yeah. because they didn't know whether or not but I think what heal the, the, I think what you're talking about is compassion, right? And, and so for, in order for us to have that compassion for the people who cause us pain. But then how do we have that compassion when we don't have the information? Well, th I think that's what we're getting to. <laughs> right? I think that's what you're actually... Yeah. I, I feel like that that's what you're trying to get yeah. at, right? Is that there has been an interpretation of the text of the scripture. There has been an evaluation of your relationship, your own personal relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And through that relationship, through that evaluation of the text, you've then been able to cultivate a spaciousness and a compassion around what you learned and what you were taught and the pain that you went through that was inflicted because of a misinterpretation of a text that you know identify with. So I think Absolutely. I'm trying to create that picture yeah. for me I, 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 and, I, I, and I think our, you're very right because listeners. I think that the point I was also trying to make earlier on was that, you know, I, I did a, a clear analogy of the struggles, you know, when I first came out, you know, with my ex-wife, the church excommunicated me. Then two years later, I found another church. Then um, I was excommunicated four years later. Yeah. But I think that a year and a half after I left that church, I found a new church. I was actually introduced to a new church by my friends from South Africa visiting London at the time, saying, Gide, go to the Metropolitan Community Church. And when I went to the Metropolitan Community Church and I began to listen to the teaching there, I even met the founder of the of the denomination and I watch a lot of his um, YouTube videos and you know and there are so many messages that he shares I mean some of his famous slogan is that you know the Lord is my shepherd and he knows I'm gay and you know <laughs> and of course that became yeah. kind of questionable to many people but I think that you know that also comes with um, um, uh, us also taking it upon ourselves to find the truth we need to find clear water from muddy water we need to dig deeper you know uh, into the, the the soil to find that spring sure. water yeah. but i think that one of the reality for me also is that um it's also up to us as well i mean you know even the bible tells us in proverbs chapter 4 verse 5 it says get wisdom get understanding for me it tells me to research. So for many people who argue with me over my sexuality, I actually do not even debate with them. But I think it's important to have the conversation for those who are, you know, struggling with how, how do I get, you know, from A to B? How do I get from, you know, um, discriminating against myself or being subjugated to all the abuse to being free? And, and I think that takes some time in itself. What would you say to a young Jide? Um, I would say to the young Jidei that God knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb and God appointed you, God anointed you and God made you the way you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And to other little queer brown boys around the world who, I mean, are, who are, might be in an impossible situation because I remember where I was feeling so alone and so excluded and not having 
the tools, the language, the knowledge mm. to do the searching myself, to find myself within the scripture. What would you say to those young queer boys around the world? They need to know that God loves them. If they're listening to this, they need to listen to it over and over again. God loves you regardless of what anyone else say. And that is where you should really hold your ground. I, I've been on this journey for many, many years now. And I think I came from a place where I you know, kept my sexuality and my faith apart. But today I'm very happy that I can say that they reconcile and they stay together. And it is my hope that, you know, those listening will also be able to find a point where they can reconcile their sexuality and their faith and celebrate who they are in God. You know, God doesn't want you to leave your gayness, you know, at home and come to church with an empty shell. God wants you to come just the way you are. And that's my message to the young people too. Come just the way you are. Fabulous. Thank you to poet Ben Donker for contributing to this conversation with his own personal experience and unanswered questions. And thank you to our friends at Here For It, another queer black podcast doing the damn thing. Guys, we may not find resolution here. We may stand by our choice to leave the church. But I think what's important is that we at least broach the subject and begin the conversation. Pain has never been reconciled by ignoring it. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. I would love to hear from you. If you have feedback about Busy Being Black or know of someone I should be in conversation with, please get in touch on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. And remember, your support doesn't cost any money. Please rate, review, and share this podcast and follow at underscore busybeingblack on Twitter and Instagram, where you can join the conversation using the hashtag busybeingblack. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Ashe.